But thank you for the opportunity to study again tonight. We thank you even for the obstacles that come to us. We, we know that you have good purpose in all this. So uh, we submit to it and accept your will, trusting you that uh, you're going to do something unusual. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. And just by way of review, we, we've been talking about in the first part of uh, chapters 1 and 2, We've been talking about the supremacy of Jesus over angels. There were three big points that we tried to make last week. The first is the, 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 the name that is more excellent than the angels is at least at the beginning, son. But son is a royal title. Uh, as king, he is superior to the angels, but he is not simply king. He is a king, and do you remember we talked about Psalm 45, the quotation, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever? Remember this? Yes, no? So so this king, because he is king of Israel and because he does the functions of God, may rightly be called God. But that extends it then, and we begin to see, because this son of whom the author of Hebrews is speaking, um, uh, laid the foundations of the earth. He created the earth. Then there's a quotation from Psalm 102 uh, in which he is affirmed to be everlasting. And the climactic quotation in chapter 1 was from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. So he is the the king who has the right to rule the whole earth, Psalm 2, 7, and 8, who is a divine king, not simply making the claim that many kings have made. He's not even king by divine right as such. He is king because he is God, and he is seated at the right hand of God. That led to the first of the uh, warning sections of the book about neglecting so great salvation. Um, We mentioned last week that a number of the commentaries really make a big point out of obedience in the book of Hebrews. And it's there. I don't want to take it away from it at all. But that's not the major issue of the book. The major issue of the book is is faith. Um, Otherwise, why would you spend that lengthy chapter 11, which is actually longer than you realize, because it actually begins in 1032 and it doesn't end until 1211. So it's a, it's a really long chapter, and <laughs> so long it had to slop over into two others. But the, uh, the effect of this is that the neglecting so great salvation is just simply failing to trust so that you turn back to something else, even something divinely provi- provided, as we shall see. Why make all the point that, Paul, that the apostle... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm rebooting so that I get the, the original <laughs> settings. Uh, um, wh- why spend all the time that Hebrews does on covenants and priesthoods and, and tabernacles and sacrifices if what the people are going to revert to is not what God commanded in the Old Testament, covenants and priesthoods and tabernacles and sacrifices? Are you with me here? Um, I, had, I mentioned to you, I had a fellow that I worked with in, in the army for a short time. He was Jewish. 
And he said, uh, I don't know about Jesus, but I know, I know God spoke through Moses. Okay. And another student, years ago, I was teaching Romans in, in a class. And after class one day, he came up to me and he said, you know, I believe everything you're saying. But he said, I was raised Catholic. And he said, when I sin, I feel like I really, I'm not forgiven. I'm not really free of the sin until I've gone to the priest and made confession, gotten absolution. It's what we've talked about in other settings where uh, your concept, how shall I say this? Your, your concept of a thing determines the way you think about it, even if your concept is false. Are you with me here? Uh, so um, uh, I, I don't need the priest's absolution. I can't use it. There's nothing it, that the priest gives me that actually takes me anywhere. Um, I feel better, but is that all, all we're after, psychological improvement? No. Uh, so if that's not all we're after, then I've got to start thinking like God thinks. And I... I uh, heard a quotation from my favorite professor. It was, I was driving a car and I didn't get a chance to make a note of it, but uh, he, he made a comment from a man named Charles Simeon. Um, what? God, and I can't quote it. I wish I could. It was said so well. What? God has forgiven my sin and I shall retain my consciousness of it? Are you making, are you, does that make sense to you? Uh, no. So, hmm? I'm sorry, I'm just yeah, am I going to cling to my sin when God has forgiven it? If God says I will remember your sin no more, I'm going to hold on to it. And so, I, I wish I could quote it the way Simeon said it. It, it was my 1830s when he lived, so it'd be a lot more <laughs> um, um, rhetorical than I can do at this point. But this is where we're headed. Are we going to look to some system, even a system that God commanded in another age <clears throat> instead of the work of Christ? And uh, so this is going to be the issue. Uh, are you going to become negligent with reference to the work of Jesus so that you turn away from him? But if I turn away from him, who am I, who am I turning away from? Yeah, the Son who is God, who is the Lord. Yes? So Psalm 102, your, uh, 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 oh dear, uh, from the beginning, O oh Lord, you founded the earth. Yes? So this is going to be where we're headed tonight. We're turning to chapter 2, verse 5. And we begin with that. There, he gives us, as we pointed out last week, a little vector uh, a kind of guide to thinking, especially about chapter 1. Not to angels did he subject the world, which is coming, about which we are speaking. The author thinks he knows what he's talking about. So that means I probably ought to pay attention and think through. Psalm 2 is not merely about David. Yes? It's about the world which is coming. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal possession. And when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Yes? 
when again he brings the the uh, now you have a little different text perhaps that's in uh, in uh, verse six of chapter one. What, what do you have when he when he uh, and again when he brings the yeah the again can be either this is another quotation that's significant or it can be uh, modifying the verb he brings again the sun and since I have this guide in two five. When he brings the Son again into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, so he's talking about the future. Uh, when he talks in Psalm 102, the quotation there in verse 10 from Psalm 102 about the eternity of the Son, this entails that his kingship is eternal. If you paid attention, as chapter 2, 1 to 4 says, if you paid attention to the words spoken by angels, if you thought that was important, and if the word spoken by angels could bring the death penalty on the, on, the, uh, on the lawbreaker. Do you remember this in the book of Numbers? Um, Moses has just received instruction about Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, there's a man picking up sticks. They don't know what to do with him. Picking up sticks, pretty bad sin, yes? Amen? Yeah. It's one of the worst. Uh, I've heard Chuck speak on that as a terrible sin. The guy was out picking up sticks, and they brought him to Moses. What are we supposed to do with this? Moses says, I don't know. Well, they go to the Lord, and the Lord says, put him to death. For picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Yeah. The, the point here is that if you, think, if you think that's important to pay attention to, and the, and the angels are merely servants, then what are we to do with the word that comes through Jesus? And it's gonna, it's, he's going to be building a case right on through to the, to the climax in chapter 10 when he will start talking about what, are we to, what specifically are we to uh, do in response to the message of this book. <clears throat> but uh, in uh, most Bibles, chapter 10 is right before chapter 11. So uh, that gives us a good guide. Good guide. So uh, the angels are um, not the heirs of the world. We are, and thus, then, in verse 6, someone testified somewhere saying, that's, yeah, I tell my students that's acceptable in Scripture. It's not acceptable on a test. So, <laughs> uh, 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 someone testified somewhere saying, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've, uh, you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put all things under his feet. Now, who is this in verse 6 that we're talking about? Yeah? Well, look at the next line. It's Jesus. Amen. Because Jesus is the answer to every Bible question. Amen. <laughs> but, he, but he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about the human race. It's the human race to which he subjected the world which is coming. Are you with me? Um, so in verse 8, he continues by saying he has subjected all things to him. He left nothing not subjected to him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, 
But we, but he says then in verse in that same verse, but we don't yet see all things subjected to him. So, what's going on here? What are we talking about? Well, folks, are, do you have any favorite animals, especially uh, undomesticated animals? What, what 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 favorites do you have? Sloth. Amen. <laughs> lions, yeah. T- tiger is among mine. Uh, lions are magnificent, but tigers look like something I really. I, someday. Pardon? Well, I would run from, but someday I'm I'm gonna get around and get real interested in tigers. So, my. But we have these things. I I was walking someplace this week, and a squirrel was running away from me, and I thought. I don't want you to run away from me. You know, are you with me here? The birds are terrified of us. Um, that's except, partly to protect them. Maggie, Steve's Maggie. Steve's Maggie. Oh, yes. <laughs> Steve's Maggie, yeah. Um, but she's been trained. Uh, the, the issue for us is we, we love this world. Yes? And I'm not talking here about the sinful love of the world. I'm talking about the love of this created order that God has made, as as fallen as it is, it's yet so beautiful. <laughs> it's a glorious place. Uh, and you've seen pictures of places all over the world you'd love to go see, yes? But this is a fallen world, and it's not subjected to us. We don't see all things sub, uh, subjected to him yet. But verse 9. Now look, do you have but at the beginning of verse 9? <coughs> all right. But... We see Jesus. Well, that's the evidence, I think, that secures it for me that in verses um, 5 through 8, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about the human race. Um, so what we have in Jesus is one who can come and begin to do for us all the things that we were created to do, to, to achieve for us, the very things that God intended for us to achieve. And so on the screen, which you cannot see, but I can see, <laughs> uh, I have the heading, The Importance of Jesus' Full Humanity. Why is it important for Jesus to become a man? For this one who is God himself, why is it important for him to become a man? Well, saving us is important, yes? There's a whole lot more going on. Saving us we think of salvation, we've talked about this, we talk about salvation and we think of one thing, getting born again. But there's so much more to salvation. Uh, in Romans 8, what is it, verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan within ourselves while we await the ad- adoption. That was too late in the passage. It's a good verse, it's not what I needed. It's a couple of verses earlier, about verse 21. The creation itself is subjected to, to, to meaninglessness, not willingly, but because of, an, uh, of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be tr- transformed into the glory of the, of the children of God. See, our salvation means the salvation of the world. Our fall meant the condemnation of the world. Our salvation means the reclamation of the world. It's It's... Redemption. Um, it's one thing for God to redeem uh, any one of us, but that's not all He has in mind. He has a whole lot more in mind. This creation must 
be clearly in a position to glorify God in every way. Uh, scientists can look at this world and not see God. Yes? When the world is redeemed, that won't be possible anymore. So why do we need a Jesus who is fully human? First reason, in verses 5 to 9, he regains our lost royal estate. We were created to be rulers. And you will say, well, gosh, there are a whole lot of people. I would have maybe a postage stamp area of the earth to rule. No, you'll be ruling the whole earth. But you see, we have a false concept of what rulership is. We think of rule as command, authority. Yes? Um, that's not what rule is in the scriptures. It wasn't from Genesis 1 on. It wasn't. When God said, let there be light, he was serving all the creatures on the, on the, in the history of the world. Yes or no? And yet he was acting in royal authority. So that Jesus is not saying something new when he says, he, would, he who would be first among you must be the servant of all. So our, our task is, is to be with the animals and serve them and help them to develop to all that they were intended to be. You know this. What have you seen? You've seen videos on Facebook, no doubt, of animals doing amazing things. Yes? Well, how, how is it they're able to do that? But they also have innate capacities that haven't been developed. You follow? So God created them with capacities. They're not able to fulfill. They are subjected to vanity, as Paul says. So the, the rest, restoration of the human race to its royal estate will allow all the animals to begin to develop to their created potential. And that's our task. That's our, our role. And it's Jesus who's beginning to do that. And observe how he does it by sacrificing himself for, for uh, the whole creation, not simply for us, but for the whole creation. So uh, he regains for us our, our lost estate. Secondly, he brings his people into his status as son. Look at 12, I'm sorry, um, 12, I typed that wrong this afternoon, uh, 2, 10 to 13. For it was fitting for him for whose sake are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the, um, you have, well, you, what kind of person is it? The, to perfect the author yeah, of their salvation through sufferings. Yeah, pioneer is a good word. For, yeah, founder is a good word. There are lots of good words here. Uh, for both the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will, I, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And again, I will be confident in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And there's a lot going on there. Um, not, not sure how much of this we can actually go into tonight, but this much we can say. We are now brothers of the one who is son and king and God, <laughs> seated at the right hand of God. And shortly, he will actually affirm that we are sons. <laughs> uh, you knew this, and this is not news to you, but you've got to keep it in context. Two, two facts you need to be aware of. 
In the Gospel of John, no mere human is called son of God. Only Jesus is called son. We are called children. We are not sons in John. He is unique. Are you with me here? And in Hebrews, up to this point, the term son has been limited to Jesus. Nobody else is called son. Shortly, he will call us sons. So so he's restored our royal estate, and he has elevated us to the status that he has. Look at these verses again, verses especially 10 and 11. Um, I wish I could understand verse 10. It was fitting for him. Uh, through whom are all things and and for whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting for him? I I don't understand the fittingness of that yet. And apparently neither do the commentaries that I've read because they don't comment on it. (laughs) Uh, Or when they do, they comment on it in a way which which is clear they didn't understand it. Um, Is it not... No, it's it's it, no. This is fitting for God, the the one for whom through whom are all things and for whom are all things is God the Father. Okay. What what is the fittingness about this? I don't get it quite. The other problem in this passage is this perfecting issue. What do we mean by perfecting? Um, and that's problematic. I, uh, frankly, Jesus is perfect. Yes, mm-hmm. he's not like Mary Poppin, Poppins. Practically perfect. <laughs> he is perfect. So what are you talking about with perfect to perfect him? And the answer is there are all kinds of discussions of this. Um, I have five views on my screen here. Make mature. Later, look over in chapter 5. Um, this book has some marvelous things to help us think about the nature of Jesus' existence as a human. And in chapter 5, verse uh, 7, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and petitions to him who was able to save him from death. Verse Uh, verse 7. Who was able to save him from death. uh, And he offered up his prayers with strong crying and tears. And he was heard because of his godliness. Verse 8. Even though he was son... Um, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Well, how, what does that even mean? Well, there are a couple of things that you, you must be aware of. Number one, he was a true human being. And in the, in the manger, he didn't lie, lie there and then sit up suddenly and say, Hello, Joseph. <clears throat> I can't call you father. I have one father, even God. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> He was a true human baby and had no more control over his body than any other true human baby has. He grew faster. He matured faster. Never, I can't even imagine what a holy two-year-old can think what a holy terror two-year-old <laughs> can't think what a holy two-year-old would be. But he was perfect. But he had to mature. Since he was the son of God and was perfect, why didn't God just uh, take him when he's five years old, tack him to the cross, and uh, salvation is complete, and, because in, in a sense, he's not mature enough to be able to handle it mm-hmm. at five. He has to grow up. And then look at verse 9, what follows. What does your text say? Yeah, but what comes first? 
having been made perfect, having been made mature. And, and just to, to give some um, evidence to support that, look down a few verses, verse 14, in the same chapter. <clears throat> Solid food is for mature. Same word group that make perfect comes from. So one view is that maturation, and certainly in Matthew in Hebrews 5, that fits, but it doesn't fit well in chapter 2. So others have come up with make perfect, but that doesn't help. Uh, one interesting proposal is that this word is used in the Old Testament a few times, not a large number of times, but a few times to uh, translate the Hebrew expression for ordaining a priest. And so go back to chapter 2, verse uh, 10, in bringing many sons to glory to ordain the um, founder of their salvation through sufferings. That in itself, as I began to think about that this week, I thought, oh my goodness, if I took that view, then, then the priesthood that Jesus heads is a priesthood of suffering, then what shall his, suffer, his followers be like? <laughs> Are you with me here? And that fits very well I, with, with much else that's in uh, the book of Hebrews so, and indeed in the New Testament. A third is fulfill, but I mean a fourth view is that this word perfect can mean to fulfill. That doesn't fit the context well either. And finally is uh, an interesting view I heard in a paper at a convention back 18 years ago, and the idea was that the guy, uh, the guy was proposing that this word group means something like to, um, to um, I, I don't know how to say it in, in a way to cover all the bases that I'm thinking about, but to um, bring into effect the new covenant. Because this, this word group is associated in significant ways in the book of Hebrews with the new covenant. So inaugurating the new covenant, he's, he's the inaugurator of our salvation. Yes, the founder, the author of our salvation. But it's a salvation through the new covenant. Turn to Hebrews 8. <clears throat> in, in verse 7, he's, up to this point, he's been talking about the, the, uh, the, pre, uh, the, the uh, priesthood. Uh, and especially the priesthood as it offers sacrifices. So verse 7 for if that first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will conclude with the house of Israel and the house of Judah a new covenant. Go down to verse 10 where the promises of the new covenant are introduced. There are four here, as I recall. Um, this is the covenant that I will make with the, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. When I put my laws upon their understanding and inscribe them on their hearts, first promise, second promise, they will be my people, I will be their God. Third promise, verse 11, they shall no more teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, for they shall all know me, saying know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And fourth, uh, because I will be merciful in that phrase, I will be merciful always translates in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the main Hebrew word, only God is, is subject of this verb, salach, which means to forgive. 
I will forgive their sins and their law, their lawless acts and their sins I will remember no more. That becomes the text for uh, all of chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10. Uh, the author of Hebrews, as we suggested, may be preaching a sermon, and he has a series of texts that he expounds. Now, the first one is going to be, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. The second one is going to be, um, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not repent, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The third one is this one. Um, um, just to validate that, look over in chapter 10 at verse 18. I'm sorry, verse uh, 16. Uh, this is the covenant which I, will con- uh, which I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, when I put my laws on their hearts and write them on their understanding, and their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. So he bookends this section with this quotation. It's very important to see that. This is one of the ways a, a speaker in the first century would help people see the, the, the blocks of thought that he's pursuing. So, um, so what we're getting is this idea of the new covenant, that the new covenant brings things to fulfillment, to perfection, to maturity. Are you with me here? Uh, and Jesus is ordained, and maybe that's the way to read it, uh, putting those last two ideas together, um, or two of the last three together, ordain and institute the new covenant. Fred? Distinguishing the old covenant. The old covenant referred to the system in the Old Testament yeah. sacrifices. Well, the, in the new but the whole covenant. It's, it's all the command. Uh, um, look at uh, chapter 7, uh, verse, uh, I think it's 11. Uh, well, 11 and 12. <clears throat> Uh, if that, uh, if he, here is the same word group, perfect. If perfection had come through the law, you, you perhaps have perfection. If fulfillment, this would be a good place for fulfillment. But if the institution of all the promises had come through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, that's critical. What is the relationship of the priesthood to the covenant? The priesthood is the basis of the covenant. Without the priesthood, you can't keep it. But with the, the priesthood, you still can't achieve the promises, the blessings. Um, if perfection had been through the Levitical priesthood, what place would there have been? What need would there have been for an order, uh, a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek to arise, and not according to the order of Aaron? Now, here's, here it is, the crucial verse, verse twelve. When there is a change of the priesthood, there is a change also of necessity of the law. So to what extent has the priesthood been changed? Yeah, well, that's not the extent. That's, that's what it is. But what's the extent of the change of the priesthood? Yeah, that's, not, that's why, but it's not the extent of it. That's what it does. But, but why? To what extent has the priesthood been changed? Completely. completely. Then the law has been done away completely. You destroy the foundation of a house. You live in Dallas area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you destroy the foundation of a house. You, you destroy the house. So if the priesthood is the foundation, 
and we don't have a Levitical priesthood now, then I can't go back to the law. There's nothing left to go back to. Are you with me here? So uh, I have this Jesus who has come as the inaugurator, as he will say in chapter two, uh, t- 10, as the inaugurator of a new and living way. Yes, by which we draw near to God. Remember this? Um, so if these things are true, then this perfection language may well be ordination of the new covenant priest language. And the unfortunate thing is the ordination of the new covenant priest takes place by way of suffering. Um, What does it mean for Jesus to learn obedience in chapter 5? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Right now I have to move on with this chapter. Let's go back to chapter 2 then. And so I have uh, uh, this perfection language. Then I get into more trouble. Verse 11, chapter 2, 11. For both he who sanctifies and they who are being sanctified are all of one. Well, sanctification, what is it? Yeah, becoming more and more like Christ. Except it's hardly ever used that way. It's only used a very few times that way in the New Testament. Indeed, in the whole Bible. Uh, what I want to do, and I, it would have been a whole lot easier if I could have had the, the video up uh, today, but uh, the Lord knew, and so we will do what we have to do. Uh, if you have a whole Bible, I only have a half a Bible today. If you have a whole Bible, turn to Ezekiel 20.12. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, 20.12. Who is doing the sanctifying? And what I'm doing is looking at passages where one person sanctifies another person. Who is doing the sanctification in Ezekiel 20.12? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, in in the Old Testament. Does it have the Lord? Yeah. Yeah. The Lord, um, who is being sanctified? Israel. Israel. What, what what time period is this? I'm not specifically asking about dates, but what what's when is Ezekiel prophesying? Well, we just had Yeah. Oh, he's already in Babylon. So the, the, the Babylonian captivity has begun. And the Lord is sanctifying Israel. Making them more like Jesus. Amen. That's why they have to go into Babylonian captivity. Yes? Well, there's, there's something else going on. Um, uh, there are a number of references here. And all I can do, if you're interested, maybe I can put some of this on Facebook so you have access to it. But you can do the same thing. If you have uh, software, look for where a person, especially the Lord, sanctifies another person. Just bring up the word sanctify, search it, uh, and look for any context where God is sanctifying somebody. And ask yourself, are they becoming more godly? So in Exodus 31, 13, Exodus 31 is just, 
two chapters before the golden calf and the Lord sanctifies Israel? So what does it mean that the Lord sanctifies Israel? Um, there are a whole raft of others. I've got a few of them here. Leviticus 20, verse 8, 21, 8, 22, 32, 21, 20, 15, uh, 21, 23, 22, 16, and, and 9, Ezekiel 20, 12, we just looked at. No, he sanctifies them. Yeah? In, in what sense? Choosing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's there. Let, what, yes, let's let's. I'm going to read a few of them here. Leviticus 20, verse 8. Yahweh sanctifies, but in verse 7, He commands them to sanctify themselves. Now, Leviticus 20, the way you sanctify yourself is uh, by your relationships, but it's not so much that you're becoming more and more godly. In Leviticus 21.8, Yahweh sanctifies, but he commands Moses to sanctify the priest. If the Lord has sanctified the priest, why does Moses have to sanctify the priest? Uh, and that's Leviticus 21. It's an odd... Well, they're satisfied to be holy. Yeah, but holy means what? There's a lot of washing going on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> holy means what? Yeah. Hmm? Godly. Yeah, godly is the way we used to th- usually think about it. Why, Mother Teresa? What a what a holy woman she was. I I want to go back to Ezekiel because it, it says in, in chapter twenty several times that he does it for his name's sake. Yeah, and that's important. At but, at some point in the future, we need to talk about that. So that the nations would not. Uh, yeah, blaspheme. Yeah, Israel. Exactly. Leviticus 21.15, the high priest must carefully restrict his marriage relationships. He can't marry a widow. Because she's sinful. Amen? What what does marrying a widow have to do with being holy? Um, Depends on how she became a widow. You have heard this sentiment before, but I heard somebody recently say, my, wife, my husband and I, in our relationship, we've never used the word divorce. I thought about murder. If never divorce. <laughs> Leviticus 22.9, the priests must carefully fulfill their duties because God sanctifies them. Carefully fulfill their duties. That is, they must put the right things on the altar. And do the right things with the blood. Sometimes the blood is to be sprinkled. Sometimes it's to be smeared. Sometimes it's to be poured. If you smear when you're supposed to pour, you're unholy. You can see how wicked that. I mean, you know. Yes? You know. Like picking up sticks. Terrible. Yes? Amen? In Leviticus 22:32, avoid profaning Yahweh's holy name since I am the Lord who sanctifies you. This is associated with his saving work in Exodus in the context. Or Leviticus 21-23, a blemished priest. A blemished priest? My stepfather is a really godly man. Would you agree with that, Jan? 
Um, but he has a hunchback because he had polio when he was a child. And if he had been a, Le a Levite and a descendant of Aaron, he could never be a priest because he has a hunchback. He's not holy. This, this is not the concept of holiness we were raised with, is it? This is the, the root of it is primarily um, ritual. And it has implications for morality, but that comes substantially later. The initial uh, concepts are presented in the early chapters of Leviticus. It's only late in the book that he starts applying it to moral issues. Um, in Ezekiel 20.12, the Sabbath was intended to teach, Yahweh, teach Israel that Yahweh sanctifies them. Sabbath? They're sanctified? Um, does Israel become, now this is the book of Leviticus we've been looking at, does Israel become more godly, more obedient because of their sanctification? No. No. Um, they haven't even gotten to Kadesh Barnea yet. And they're going to, when God tells them, I promised you the land 400 years ago, it's time to go in and take it. You know what? Nope, we're not going to do it. We die in there. We're not going to make it. Yes? It's bad enough that they wouldn't obey. It's worse that they wouldn't trust him. The reason they didn't obey is they didn't trust him. Are you with me here? They're not becoming more and more godly, but they're becoming holy. Follow my definition of holy and sanctification. Okay. Um, it's changed status, not changed lifestyle. Okay. Their status is they are in relation. They live in relationship with God. In some way, and here the next heading on the screen that you would have seen had we had the ability to project it: the presence of God in the camp in an alien world is what's sanctifying Israel. When when Miriam was stricken with leprosy, what what did she have to do? She had to go outside the camp. Yeah, why? Because she was unholy. Well, maybe she was a really godly woman. Why can't she stay in the camp? Well, because of her leprosy. Leprosy. Her status changed. Yeah, her status changed. And she can't stay where the, the holy presence of God is. She has to leave. That means outside the camp is the unclean place. In the camp, everything must be clean. Not zestfully clean, but it has to be clean. Yes? Um, but then as you get nearer the center of the camp, things get, get more serious because you have Levites living around the tabernacle. So that's holy territory. But inside the, inside the fence of the tabernacle is the holy courtyard where only pure people can go in. Yes? You might be a, 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 a thief, a committed thief, but as long as you've done the right rituals, you're pure enough to go in. It's not a moral category. It's a, it's a, it's a, a ritual category. And only the priest can, can approach the altar, right? Only the priest can go inside the tabernacle. And only the high priest can go in, inside the holy place, holy, most holy place. So you keep getting higher and higher grades of holiness. Are you with me here? But the camp is holy. Because God lives there. 
not because the people are becoming more and more godly. So when we talk here in chapter 2, let's go back to Hebrews 2 and think about what we're, what we're saying. Hebrews does not, this is not Paul. Hebrews does not talk about Christ indwelling his people. It talks about him dwelling among his people. That's different. He's going to use, you know this, because you've read this book before. Uh, later in chapter 3, he's going to talk about the wilderness wandering generation. And um, uh, at Kadesh Barnea, and maybe we'll have to make this our, our treatment of the latter part of chapter 3, but these ideas are huge. I can't just pass them by. It's going to be critical that we talk about these. At Kadesh Barnea, he promised, Je- I'm starting to say Jethro, uh, um, uh, Jacob and Caleb land in the land of promise, yes or no? You, 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 Caleb was full after his God, Deuteronomy says, on more than one occasion. And that means then that he is a man whose heart is given to God. And of the, of the 12 spies, only Jacob and Joshua, I'll get it out right in a minute. I knew something was wrong. Joshua and Caleb get an inheritance. So why don't they say to each other, hey, why do we have to wait for all these dumb, unbelieving people? <coughs> to die off. Let's just go take our land. God's promised it. We have the promise of God. What more do we need? Amen? Have you heard anything like this ever? Not by them. them. We're just going and take it. Why didn't they do that? (laughs) It wasn't that they wanted him to. They knew that he had to. If God doesn't go with us, we can't do anything. That means then that if God's only going to go with the camp, then, he's, then Caleb and Joshua, leaving the camp, leave the sanctifying presence of God. And they can't get the promise. You can only get the promise by staying with the camp. And that's going to be critical. The rest of the book is going to hinge on this chapter 3 in a very large sense. Staying in the camp determines um, your, your, your future destiny. So uh, he goes on. Uh, let me move on here. So Hebrews does not emphasize Christ's indwelling believers. He does not, in Hebrews, indwell, but dwell among his people. It, it is this presence which sanctifies. It is not my improvement that is sanctification. It is my living, my, my spending my life where the presence of God is, of the one who sanctifies. Pardon well, that's, that's, that's part of the way Paul, uh, the, this book is going to develop that idea. How do we live in God's We'll talk about it. That's what the rest of the book is about. You said at one point that it has something to do with the ritual, the sanctification. Uh, in the Old Testament, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because we are sanctified, but we don't have ritual. Right? That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and we'll have more to say about these things as we go. Okay. But... Uh, um, uh, to remain in the camp is to continue, and I have camp in quotation marks here, uh, to remain in the camp is to continue to receive his sanctifying ministry. Um, it is this continuing sanctification uh, which guarantees the inheritance of the blessing. I want you to turn to one more verse. It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think it's verse 14. Uh, 
Yes, we've talked about this verse in the past, so it's another opportunity to see it. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified by his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified by the brother. Since therefore your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. <laughs> you didn't want any unclean children. At least my mama didn't. Uh, so, <laughs> but uh, an unbeliever sanctified? How is the unbeliever sanctified? What I'm going to offer here is, is a quick term. It's a relational sanctification. Folks, most of you, if not all of you, are believers. Yes, there's always the possibility in any Christian gathering that there are some who are not. Correct or, or not? Yes? Problem is, as we said last week, I don't know who they are. I, there's no way to identify them overtly. Um, so by coming here tonight, I am receiving sanctification because I'm, I'm with you. Are you with me here? If, if the, if the non-believing husband divorced his wife, he would no longer be sanctified because he's not in relationship anymore. The presence of the Lord in the believer, for Paul, we can talk about indwelling, yes? So, so the, the, uh, presence of, uh, the indwelling presence of Christ in the believer sanctifies the relationship so that the non-believer becomes a tool in God's hand to help the believer, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, presence of Christ in the believer makes the unbeliever a tool in God's hand to help the, the, the uh, sister grow. Not saved, so, so. No, because he says shortly, verse 16 in chapter 7, for how do you know, O woman, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O oh husband, whether you will save your wife? It's possible. It's not certain. But the non-believer becomes specifically a tool that God uses. And remember that this is in a period when you would have lots of adults being saved, already married, and the one, one member of the marriage is saved, the other one is not. So what should we do? Well, chapter 7 is about that particular problem. What do you do? And Paul says, don't depart. Stay in the marriage. God's using that person. Unbeliever though he or she is, God's using them. That's a lot different than what we've been taught. We were always taught that they were somehow saved through the other. Or might yeah, but that's not what the text says. Okay. I was that's taught that they, were, they enjoyed God's protection. Yeah, they do that too. By being mm-hmm. proximity to the yeah. believer. As God provides for the believer, he provides for the family. That's right. That's there as well. Yeah, that's right. And so that's also included. Glad you brought that up. Um, maybe... Well, this is in the case of my grandparents, though. Yeah. Um, grand, grandmother prayed for her husband hey. for over 50 years yeah. for him to accept Christ, and on, near his deathbed, two weeks before he died, he accepted Christ. Yeah. Um, and many had witnessed to him, so yeah. I guess God doesn't... That's what I was always taught, something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's not what our text says. Yeah. So, what what else could it mean? Well, receives benefits from God, also is used by God for the good of the rest of the family. Uh, so, all of this is in view. So, the issue for us is going to be, and it's going to be this very shortly in Hebrews 3, 
It's going to be important. In fact, let's, let's anticipate that. Chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in, uh, that, that consists in withdrawing from the living God. Now, who is the living God? Yeah. In Hebrews, who is the living God? Jesus. I can't go back to the Lord in the Mosaic ritual. The Lord is no longer in it. He's not sanctifying the priesthood anymore. Are you with me? If, if Hebrews had been written after 70 AD, as we said last week, all of the priests were killed. They were executed uh, by crucifixion. Uh, if they didn't die in the war, they, they, they were executed by crucifixion. The priesthood was gone. So what a, what, what a powerful argument that would have been if this book had been written after 70 AD. It, it, it evidently was written before that. So I can't go back. There's no priesthood to go back to. There's no sacrifice to go back to. There's no law to go back to when there is a change of the priesthood. There is of necessity also a change of the law. If the priesthood is the foundation upon which the, the law is built, then you destroy the foundation, you destroy the superstructure built upon it. Yes? So I can't go back. I have to go forward. I can't go back because there's nothing there to go back to. But then he says, verse 13, but exhort one another how often? How often do I need um, Christian fellowship? Oh, no, that can't be. It's uh, 9 to 12 on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Amen? It's the only holy hour, <laughs> holy period of the week. And Wednesday night if you've got a really godly church. And Sunday night if it's really, really godly. When I was a kid, if you didn't have a Sunday night service, that was how the church started toward liberalism. We knew that. So, uh, but but um, fellowshipping with believers entails not just having time to get along with one another and enjoy one another's presence, sing a few songs, read some scripture, and talk about it. It entails getting into each other's lives and, and encouraging. The word here can be both exhort and encourage. So it has to do with correction and uh, strengthening and comforting. Are you with me? Yes? So So... I need this fellowship. When I am in that fellowship, I have the sanctifying presence of Christ. Yes? We've got it now. We've got it now. But we think that we're, we're, we're in good shape if we just get together for church one or two times a week. That's not the point. That's not the way God intended this to be. One of the metaphors for the church in the scriptures is family. Yes or no? Now, we think in terms of family being the nuclear family, but we're one of the very, the, the technological West is among the, the only uh, culture, uh, cultures in the history of the world that has thought of the family as nuclear. And now it's nuclear because it blows up often enough. <laughs> but, but, but normally it's the extended family. Yes? In India, families, if they can afford it, live all together in the same community. Uncles and aunts and cousins. Yes, sir. Why does it say, but encourage, you 
you know, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. We'll talk about that when we get into chapter three, if I may put it off. We will bring that up. Because that, those. Two, maybe there's some kind of. Uh, yeah, well, as long as the opportunity is available to, to come to enjoy the, the blessing of God, that would uh, have entailed us having already dealt with Psalm 95 in the quotation of chapter three. So that's why you're wondering about that. Um, yeah. Uh, before we leave chapter two, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the sanctification, particularly how it uh, relates to Ezekiel 20. It, yeah. Particularly with it's, the it's, rela- it's God being in the midst of Israel, and they're recognizing that Sabbath day um, can become such a ritual, as you know. Um, but it wasn't. It was intended to be a feast day. And when you celebrate, you're celebrating the, the blessings of God. What you're putting on the table is what God has specifically provided. Overtly, think about being a farmer. Some of you may have been in, in farming at some point in your life. Think about being a farmer. The rains have to come in the right amount at the right time with, with the right amount of sun, yes? Or you don't get a crop. Is that true? Well, who controls the weather? My favorite professor said you can't... You can't uh, fool all the people all, all the time, but weathermen come close. <laughs> so, 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 who controls the weather? Well, there's only one who controls the weather. What'd you say? Jesus. Jesus. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so when you're putting bread on the table, when you're putting vegetables on the table, when you're putting sauces on the table, it's what God has promised in the covenant to provide. Are you with me here? So that was, that was what its original intent was to be. But sabbatical year is the biggie. But that's what I was thinking. Is this the sabbatical year specifically? It's, no, it's the Sabbath day specifically in, in, in that one passage, but it's all the Sabbath. So, so uh, we, we lose track of the sabbatical year. We, all, all we worry about is, can I really work on Sunday? And that's not even the issue. The issue is, this is a day for uh, enjoying the blessings of God. Um, so, let's, let's go back to chapter 2. Since therefore, verse 14, um, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, in the same way, shared the same, so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and reconcile those who all their lives long had been uh, subject to bondage by the fear of death. For he does not help angels, but he helps the seed of Abraham. But from this it was necessary that he be made like his brothers in every way, so that, and here it comes, you have so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Mm-hmm. Um, Hebrews is one of the best written books in the New Testament. Uh, it's artistically written. And uh, I have to pay attention to the word order sometimes. It's critical at times. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to represent that as well as I can. So that a faithful he might become. And, and I'm sorry, so that a merciful he might become and faithful high priest to make atonement for the, uh, the things, in respect of the things of God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. 
It's one thing to have a faithful high priest, but he might be faithful to God and not to me. Yes. But I have a faithful high priest who is preeminently merciful. I grew up in a church where we had invitations every Sunday. Uh, went to First Baptist Church in Dallas, and they have it on Wednesday night, too. But um, in my home church, we did it on Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Uh, and one of the things that we always were intended to, to do, Fred remembers, you haven't been a good Christian all, uh, all this time, so you go rededicate your life. And I just hated to go down there and talk to the pastor because I've fallen back and I'm not living the Christian life I ought to be living. He never asked me any specific questions, but... Um, but uh, and, and I knew him well enough to know he wasn't going to be condemning. Yes, but there are pastors who would be. Yes. But Jesus is a merciful priest and a faithful one in the things that pertain to God so that he might make atonement for the, for the sins of the people. So of the, of the reasons for the, the um, incarnation, we saw two of them. Uh, to restore our royal estate, to elevate us to the status of sons. Third now, that he might become a merciful priest to us. Um, Very soon we're going to see one of those favorite verses. Uh, He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. You remember that? We know that verse. And you will say, but he wasn't tempted in every way that I am because there are temptations I have he couldn't have had because he didn't have any track record of sin. But in another sense, he was tempted worse than you and I are. Um, Let's suppose that I can bear 10% of the power of temptation and Steve can can bear 30% and uh, Mike can bear 50%. But at, at that point, each one of us folds under the power of temptation. Jesus bore 100% didn't fold under its power. He knows the power of temptation in our lives because he had all of it. And he knows our weakness. You know Psalm 103, yes? Um, uh, He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. One of the things that dust is in Scripture is weak. So he is a merciful priest in the things that pertain to God so that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He goes on then, therefore my brothers, I'm sorry, holy brothers, holy brothers 3.1, does that mean they're saved? Born again, justified, born of the blood. <laughs> Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing blood? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Does that mean necessarily that they're born again? Israel was holy. If Israel was holy and God sanctified them, does this mean, and note how heavily Hebrews depends on the Old Testament. So if, if, if the Israelites were holy as they made a golden calf, then... Does, the, does this phrase necessitate that they are born again? No. no. Why are they holy? What is the special status? They are in the community where the presence of Christ is. You're in the camp. 
And that's, that, that, that's good, Linda. I appreciate you picking that up. That's going to be critical. I'm going to come back to that over and over. So wherefore, holy brothers. Now you have, do you partakers of the heavenly calling? Share. Share in the heavenly calling. This word is used in chapter 1. Look back in chapter 1 at verse, uh, oh dear, verse uh, 9. You have loved uh, righteousness and hated w- uh, wickedness. For this reason, God, your God, has, a, has, a, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. companions. Same word. They're people who company around, company around with folks who are participating in the new, in the, in the new covenant. They're people who are there. I don't, are, they, are they born again? Are you born again? I don't, can't see that you're born again by looking at you. You can't see that I'm born again by looking at me. Yes? I may be like so many others over the centuries who've talked a good fight, but when it comes to the essentials, walks away, abandons everything. Haven't we known people like this? Uh, I, I taught for a year part-time with a fellow who uh, was, a, was a Baptist preacher, was known as a good Baptist preacher, which by definition means what's a, what constitutes somebody as a good Baptist preacher. Yeah, he's a soul winner. But by his own testimony when I was there, he had only been a believer for two years. Was he, was he right or wrong? I don't know. Can't tell. Yes? This is my problem. I can't simply rest in your affirmation of faith in Christ. I can't rest there. Because I don't know whether your affirmation is true or false, whether you are misguided, whether you have told the truth. I can't tell you. Why, why, why do you sigh so deeply? I'm just thinking of known a person for a long time and it seems that they have strayed from the faith you begin to wonder you do they are yeah and and at that point it's not our task to make a decision whether they're born again or not but to go do hebrews 3 12 and 13 does this make sense to you folks i came from a church in memphis where uh, part of the corporate pattern of the church was to talk about people who fall through the cracks. He got a lot of new new members, and then you'd go for a few weeks, and before long you didn't see them anymore, and they'd fallen through the cracks was the point. You didn't know where they were or what they were doing. Um, folks, if what I'm reading in Hebrews is right, can't afford that. Because if, if sanctification in Hebrews is gathering with the brothers and sisters... Where the, where the presence of Christ is, if that's what sanctification is, <clears throat> then I can't, I can't let somebody simply stray away. I've got to go to them and encourage them to come back. And it's not about getting the numbers up in Sunday school. It's not about getting more members for your church. It's about your family. And this is where I was headed a few minutes ago. Families get together some in most 
of the world in, in world history. Families have lived together. And if a family member moves off, you worry about them. Yes or no? Uh, so one of the very one of the one of the great places that you can see this, of course, is in the parable of the prodigal son. The, the son moved off, and the father worried about him until he came back home. The one that stayed home had wandered off in heart. So I can't I can't rest in anybody's simple profession of faith. Well, Jim, it doesn't sound like you believe in once saved, always saved. I do. I just, I just can't see it in anybody else. I can't even say for absolute, 100% certainty that I myself am born again. I see enough contradiction within my own being. There are times I have to wonder. Yes? And I'm not trying to here to make you feel uh, unsure, unstable in your faith. What I'm trying to do is to confront us. That these matters of fellowshipping in the body of Christ are not simple matters of building an organization. This is how bodies are. If one of the members of my body wandered off at night, I think I'd be looking for it. <laughs> yes? Well, we are members of each other. And if that's important, uh, then even if there's a non-believer in the group, that non-believer is sanctified. 1 Corinthians 7.14 when he leaves the group, he leaves the sanctifying presence of the, of, of the Lord. Now, I started with a chart last week. Let me pick it up where we left it off. The chart looked something like this. Um, here I have uh, the community of Messiah. And I call it this so as not to confuse it with the organization that the church has become. Okay? Here I have the Jewish world. In the community of the Messiah, there are, we would say, um, for, for brevity's sake, unsaved and saved people. We have... Uh, in this way, that, therefore, I see two groups, and since I'm making the illustration, I can make the way I want to. So, <laughs> I've got three people, A, B, and C. Because I'm making the illustration, I know that C is born again. Okay? And I know that A and B are not. Now, what's happening in Hebrews is, if you go to chapter 10, 32, and following, they have been persecuted in the past, and persecution is probably coming again. So then chapter 12, at verse uh, 4, I think it is, uh, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle against sin. Well, now, is he talking about plucking out your eye, like Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount? I don't think so. In the, in the immediate context, consider him who endured the opposition of sinners against himself. For you have not struggled to the point of shedding blood in your, in your um, uh, resisting sin. So the sin of persecution. It started in 1032. It goes all the way to 10, 12, 11. This whole thing is about uh, the, the, um, the hardships that people face 
when they live in faith. Look at the end of chapter 11, about verse 35. Um, But others were stoned. Others, still others, were sawn in two. Remember this? Not accepting the release so that they might achieve a better better, uh, resurrection. You remember this? So uh, persecution has come and persecution is coming. Now why would the Jewish world, as we're dealing with Hebrews, why would the Jewish world persecute these folks? Which ones of them would they persecute? All three. So we're going to have persecution coming to all of the characters in our illustration. Um, What happens then? What's going to happen to people when they're persecuted for their uh, membership in the community of Messiah? Some are going to leave. leave. Who who will we say won't leave? See, won't leave. All right. Now, is it merely that, simply, purely, that God holds them and they don't ever leave, or is there, are there other things involved? What we have in our passage in chapter 3 is he starts to talk about the greatness of Jesus as, as compared to Moses. Look there in verses 1 to 6. Christ is, is the maker of the house, and the maker of all things is God, so Christ is God, but he's also the son over the house, so he's greater than Moses. And then he quotes from Psalm 95. Uh, Wherefore, as, he, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, notice now, today, yes, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, do not let your hearts, oh no, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the, uh, of the testing in the wilderness when, uh, where your fathers tested me Uh, One of the proposed translations for this end of that line is in unbelief. Um, And and they saw my works for 40 years. For this reason, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in heart. They they do not know or have not known my ways. Uh, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So the day of today is the day when the offer of entering into rest is being given. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Can you talk about rest? Haven't yet. We're going to. It's chapter four, so we'll talk about we'll talk about rest uh, apparently next week. Um, well, I was actually only hoping to get through chapter three, so we're doing pretty well. Um, so the today is the day when the offer of entry into rest is given. But these people that he's talking about in Psalm 95, and he's, of course, talking about specifically in our text, Numbers 14, and the refusal to go into the land to take it. Um, uh, Psalm 95 in the Hebrew text is a little different, not substantially, but it's a little different. It, it's broader in its references. But this is particular to Kadesh Barnea. After God closed down the offer of today, nobody was to go in. People did try to go in. Do you remember this at the end of Numbers 14? Move your heads. Read the Bible. It sheds enormous light on the commentaries. So, uh, uh, um, some tried to go in, and Moses was like <laughs> Willy Wonka. Don't. Stop. Come back. 
pretty much uh, peremptory, nothing. He, he knew they weren't going to do it. But they went into the land, they, they attacked a city, and they were, they were destroyed all the way to Horma. Well, whoopee-ding, I'm glad to know that. I don't know where Horma is, don't have to. The word Horma means utter destruction. So they came under the, the destiny that was, that, was, that was laid out for the Canaanites. The people who left the camp were treated by Canaanites like Israel must treat the Canaanites. Are you with me? So today is the day when the offer of rest is being extended. And as long as, you, as that day of offering is available, how many sermons, if you grew up in a revivalistic denomination, how many sermons have you heard along this line? Yeah. Yeah. So today is the acceptable day. day. Yeah. Maybe you've even preached some. <laughs> <laughs> but that's thoroughly, that's what the book of Hebrews is about, the day of offering. Entering into rest is, is still available, but don't harden your heart. So he says, verse 12, Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you. In fact, the way this is constructed, it's an unusual construction in Greek. I only found six or seven examples of this in the entire Greek Bible. Uh, and in every one, it, it, seems, it seems to mean something like, it's possible that in any of you an evil heart of unbelief will arise. And as we shall see in chapter 6, the people most at risk are not the youngest believers, they're the leaders. And that's the shocking thing. Folks, Swindoll needs people around him, exhorting him. Over what? Over the greatness of Jesus. Over the excellence, the supremacy of Jesus. Over the... Uh, Every one of us needs somebody around saying, look, I know it's hard. I know you're struggling. I know, folks, people in, in church leadership are subject to some of the worst treatment you can imagine. Um, and, um, and they need encouragement. So just drop a word someday to any of the leaders that you know. I, I don't know what your situation right now is. It may be very hard. It may be very easy. But you need to know that I'm praying for you, and Christ is worth it, whatever the cost. Does this make any sense to you? To, to, to hold up the excellence of who Jesus is. Because even a great leader could be not born again. I don't know. Everything Swindoll says makes me think, yeah, he's born again. But he might have learned to put on a good show. Am I, am I making sense to you? And if that's the case, I've got to watch out not for necessarily the newest believer. I need to, I need to look out for everybody. All of us live in a, in a connection of relationships. And that means then I need to be exhorting, we need to be exhorting one another daily about the things that Hebrews is talking about. Your life may be hard. It may be, you may be going through things you never dreamed you would go through. You can't even imagine how God could allow you to get into these things. But we haven't been beheaded yet. We haven't been crucified yet. And Jesus knows how our flesh rebels against such things. Does he not? He knows the force 
of temptation because he bore it all. Yes or no? Then exhort one another to daily as long as the today is being pronounced. So that today, the day of the offering of, of rest, it's coming, it's not yet. You have a priesthood who was, or, I'm sorry, you have a high priest who was ordained to the priesthood by suffering. He was prepared for the, the priesthood by suffering. So, how can you expect to get out of it? Why would you expect to get out of it? And then he goes on, uh, so that no one of you might be uh, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become, and, and here is the second of two statements I've got to go back and emphasize, and it's time to stop. Verse 14, we have become companions of Christ. If, it's not bad enough that it says if. It has a suffix on it that is emphatic. So it's a really big if. If we hold fast the beginning of our confession secure to the end. Look back at chapter 3, verse 6. Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are, same word, if uh, we hold fast to the boldness and boasting of hope. And indeed we will. And indeed we will if we have the ministry of the body of Christ. I am not, I'm not a, a lone, lone ranger. Go ahead, Kay, I'm sorry. That's all right. But I, I think I, I, we have the spirit of God in us, uh -huh. and it, we will yeah. persevere. That's true, but he also uses means, and we must, we must yes. and adopt the means. So let me finish this chart in light of what we've just been saying. Before we finish it, I was just thinking of uh, Jacob, uh, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Joseph. Uh -huh. And uh, Jacob I would have put unsaved. <laughs> so yeah. that encourages me. Yeah. Now, when, let's, let's assume this community is functioning the way Hebrews teaches. They surround this fellow. And they say, yeah, persecution is hard. Don't give up. What, 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 what would you go back to? You're going to go back to Moses? You can't go back to Moses. You can't go back to Aaron. You can't go back to the tabernacle. You can't go back to the sacrifices. What would you go back to? Jesus is superior over all of them. What would you go back to? And the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ secures him. This fellow also is surrounded by the members of the community. And they say the same thing to him. Something I learned in two interesting experiences that I don't have time to talk about is that you can develop affection for people when you suffer with them. It's an amazing thing. I never had, I never had known that before. Um, so uh, when they come around him and exhort him, um, he stays, yeah, you're right, Jesus is greater than anything that Moses has to offer. What would I go back to? I'm not sure about all this suffering stuff, but I'll stay. And he begins to, be, he begins to love the Lord, yeah, which we've used as a synonym for faith. And thus he moves over into the, uh, into the safe side of the graph. Of the chart. This guy may get a little bit of exhortation, 
But he says, nah, because we don't exhort him, because we don't come and encourage him and remind him of the greatness of Christ, remind him of what Jesus has done and remind him that the old sacrifices could never accomplish what Jesus has done. And yes, the suffering is hard, but Jesus was ordained by suffering. (laughs) Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. But but we don't tell him that. What's going to happen to him? He's going to slip back over here, leave the community. He thinks he's going back to, Yahweh, well, let me do it this way. He thinks he's going back to the Lord of the Old Testament. But the Lord of the Old Testament has moved over there. He can't go back. There's nothing to go, go back to. Consequently, it's very subtle. And you choose one of two ways to rest. And choose Moses' way or Jesus' way. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, because broad is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction. Many find it. How narrow is the gate, how restricted is the way that leads to life. There are few who find it. Let's close with prayer. Father, um, the issues here are not simply issues of growing up as Christians. The issues here are issues of life and death. So if they are issues of life and death, press upon us the urgency of the exhortations in chapter 3. Keep before us the importance. If, If the word spoken by angels was confirmed and any disobedience was Uh, treated with a fit punishment. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Father, this is a message both for us personally, individually, to remind us of the greatness of Christ, but also corporately that we must become a community where the greatness of Christ is on our lips. We're exhorting one another, we're encouraging one another, we're comforting one another in pain to go on with Jesus, not to give up, not to abandon, not to go back to anything. Your ancient Hebrew people thought they could go back to Moses. We don't even have that, though we try. So God, uh, give us a continuing confidence in the work of Christ and a continuing commitment to encourage each other with the work of our great Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Meeting in the next two weeks. Okay. Uh, vacation Bible School. It's, it's the 15th. That's, that's, that, that's next week, isn't it? Yeah. Your vacation Bible School and, and, and yeah. And you're out.